0: Welcome to a new edition of Campus Chats, my name is Kim Zwitsalot, I'm one of the tutors at UCU, I'm also one of the lecturers, I teach economics, and I'm here today with Patricia Canning, who is one of our tutors and lecturers in linguistics. Patricia, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: I am Patricia Canning, and my accent is from Belfast, Mm -hmm. and I usually start off by apologising for that, but I'm not really that sorry at all, but Mm -hmm. I am sorry if I'm not that easily understood. So you've just said that I'm a linguist, which is true. And I don't know what anything else, what other things that you want me to say, because it's not terribly exciting. I'm not a very exciting,
0: uh, I don't have a very exciting background, I don't think. Oh, I'm I'm sure plenty of people would disagree with that. But um, yeah, why linguistics? What uh, got you into the field of linguistics? Um, Like most things that happened in my life, it was
1: probably an accident. Um, when I, I I did actually get, am I allowed to say this? How much, uh, kickback am I going to get for revealing things on this show? But I did get (laughs) kicked out of school.
0: Um, you know, it's the internet. So if you know, whatever you're comfortable being public.
1: Well, probably everybody knows this anyway. I did get kicked out of school, uh, for doing no work whatsoever and not having any interest in the, in the school at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when I did that, I, a couple of years later, I had this, um, I had this friend who we both decided, you know, you can't really get a decent job without some kind of level of qualification. And I didn't have high school anything really, not worth talking no. about anyway. And uh, so we decided we would join the local, uh, what is it called in, in Holland? It's it's For us, it was the tech. So it was like a, a sort of, in between second and third level education. So somewhere that most kids would have gone to if they didn't do very well at school or they just wanted to do something extra before going to university or indeed to get a job. So the queue for everything else, I really wanted to do um, something snazzy and sexy like media studies, but the queue was too long. And as I, I have no patience, as anybody who knows me will know. And when I looked around the room, the only cue that had no, the only uh, subject that had no cue was English. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, well, you know, I didn't feel miserably at English at school. So that actually might be my calling. So I went over and uh, I told the teacher the, the sad story of being kicked out of school. And he, he asked me, why should I let you in my class? And I said, I'm going to prove you wrong. So I stuck <laughs> to my word, and he told me I was his wild card. And do you know I this is so weird because I've been trying to trace him to say uh, hi and thanks because yes. I sort of came a long way after I went to his class. So I went to A level English in the tech in the yes. in, in the college, and uh, I I scored the highest in the year. So there Woo! you go. Know. So that sort of made me think, right? Okay, I can do this. So that's why linguistics. Yes. I was, I've always been interested in language, uh, what it does and how it does it. So that's it. Okay. And it's too long for everything else.
0: And if you would have to, um, if someone would ask you, if one of your students would ask you, why should I take linguistics? What would your answer be?
1: Well, my answer would be that you can have no method of communication that's successful if you don't have a good grasp of the language that you're using to communicate. Uh, language is the one thing we all use whatever our fields of expertise are whatever we go into we're always going to need language to be able to communicate that so linguistics and a knowledge of how language works for me is just a given in every subject i know that not everybody would say it like that but you are asking me and i'm slightly biased so that's my <laughs> answer
0: because because what exactly is linguistics because a lot of people think that studying italian would be linguistics but that's not what it is right
1: no, that's studying a language uh, mm-hmm. or learning a language and uh, the the study of linguistics can be separated into tons of different specialisms. So you have, well, um, oh, you've got everything from the nuts and bolts of language, which is what we start off teaching in Linguistics 11, just a free little plug of some of our courses here. <laughs> but we start off with the nuts and bolts, you know, what are the bits and pieces of language? And that's your foundation for all of the other branches of linguistics that you can go into. So you've everything from cognitive linguistics to psycholinguistics. Uh literary fiction lovers will will probably stay at one point stylistic. Um
0: mm-hmm. and I think there's something going on with your mic right now. I don't know if uh you touched something, but
1: no, but there might be gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now work. you're giving me
0: nightmares. I still have nightmares from that movie. Uh, oh, <laughs> but it's okay. No worries.
1: <laughs> is okay now.
0: It uh, sounds good now, so
1: maybe it's the gods telling me to shut up. Nah. Um, so you can, you know, there are so many different areas of linguistics that you can go into. Uh, you've also got um, forensic linguistics, which is just started in the in the college this year. Yay! Mm-hmm. So we're having loads of fun doing that um and obviously uh, semantics and syntax and those foundational uh tools that you need to get to get uh to build on to get to the other branches of linguistics as well
0: yeah and um because what is your own field what do you do your research in what field of linguistics is that
1: i'm very applied with the work that i do so uh, as i say every linguist needs to have the foundations the nuts and bolts if you like to be able to do any of the other uh I don't like calling them subfields because it sort of feels like they're inferior to some other, you know, super umbrella field. And that's not the case. Uh, so I can't remember what your question was. Sorry, it's been a long day. <laughs> again.
0: What fields would your own research be in? And you mentioned it's oh, my like research. Why? Was it more the social? Is it more the psychological side? What? Oh, was a sweet bit of
1: everything, really, because it's it's very because it's very applied. It's I study language in use, but the particular context of use has varied over the years for me. I mean, I started off as a Shakespearean scholar, would you believe? And that's what my my first book was in uh, was on the <laughs> the language of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. Um, so I'm very interested in how language and ideology intersect, and that is a, a, probably the easiest way to answer that. But the work that I've been doing in the last lot of years has been in the forensic area. So um, high language works in the judicial setting, and and why language matters mm-hmm. in a forensic sense. So we do everything there from identifying, uh, well, sort of analyzing rather than identifying authorship, for example, um, and the sort of process from uh, talking to producing texts and witness statements and things like that. I mean, that's a very small area. Uh, Everything from hate speech, um, online trolling, uh, whose text is this, um, who's sending these emails, so things like that, abusive messages, analysing all anything that involves the police basically, or or the the system of the law, legal system.
0: Because you've been working on the Hillsborough Affair, right? Rehoboth, mm-hmm. disaster,
1: yeah, for a good couple of years now, yeah. And Although I'm not really allowed to say, I'm not even allowed to talk too much about that because there's an ongoing. No, no, you can, you can ask, and then I can, I can tell you what you, what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not.
0: For people that are not familiar with it, can you explain what what happened? Yeah,
1: it was um 31 years ago. The FA Cup semi-final in um, in the UK football calendar is a big event in any year, and that year was no different. And it was uh it was held at Sheffield Wednesday's football ground and so it was it was not very familiar to the fans who would have been arriving because they were Liverpool fans and Nottingham Forest fans. So it's always held in a neutral ground, which is why it was in mm-hmm. Sheffield's stadium. Uh but there was very little by the way of police uh support and very little Knowledge of of the ground from from the fans, and this, there was a, a distinct lack of stewards. So, a lot of fans arrived and were uh, sort of guided by a, a long identified bottleneck in the area of of, yeah. of entry, at the point of entry, and they went down a tunnel uh, into very crowded pens, and there was a crush, and ninety six people died in right. the crush. Yeah. Yeah. So the problem with it was. I mean, the deaths were horrific and as if losing a life was not bad enough. Uh, There was, the whole situation was compounded by the fact that the police blamed the fans for for the deaths of the 96. And even though the fans have since been exonerated in the court, it didn't stop the fact that there was a narrative that built up over the years fed by, well, institutional voices, let's say, Mm -hmm. um, that blamed the fans. So the fans uh, felt like they were on trial Uh, that's that's their words to me it felt like you know you're you're on trial for the whole thing you know you've lost your family family member you've lost your friend you almost lost your own life and yet here you are carrying the can for something that was not your fault so Mm -hmm. there was a double tragedy I think with with Hillsborough so a lot of the work that I do is investigating the 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 texts that have come from that disaster and that that series of investigations uh so that that's quite a
0: focus of our forensic linguistics course and then when you um when you say text do you mean like media attention or official police documents or
1: well actually both i mean it's a good point that you raise there with the with the media attention because that's sort of the next strand of investigation that i'm discussing with um uh, people involved in in the work that i'm doing Mm -hmm. so that might be the next the next area of analysis for us
0: and you mentioned doing interviews as well, for with, with fans or? Oh yeah, I I would ordinarily need to speak with fans, and
1: I have done over the years. There's a there's quite a few of the most. Actually, they're all they're all lads. I call everybody lads anyway because I'm an Irish woman. <laughs> Everybody's lads to me, you know. I call my students lads, even though they're not all lads. Um, but yeah, I've spoken with a lot of the the survivors of, of Hillsborough, and um, they have been immensely. Dignified, and I'm so grateful to the to them for for speaking with me and for continuing to support the work that I'm doing as I'm trying to support the work that they're doing. Yeah, in the justice campaign.
0: Because so I have to admit, I'm still a little bit confused about what exactly forensic linguistics is. But you're basically trying to find out how the language used reflects the relationships or the views of the people involved, or well,
1: a lot of the work that I'm doing, particularly with, with the disaster, mm-hmm. the Hillsborough disaster, is to, uh, I'm investigating the, the witness statements for uh, a sort of police footprint, if you like.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there's a lot of, I mean, I could talk about this until tomorrow, so please stop me if I carry on. Too. <laughs> I will, yeah. There's a, you know, there's been an, a, a proven link that between um, manipulating statements and and the, the fact that the, the fans have been blamed for so many things. You can see that blame culture sort of very much manifested in the, in the language of the witness statements that are largely police led. So you'll see uh, how, for example, topics like alcohol are, are foregrounded in a lot of the statements and having spoken with some of the the people who's, who those, who, I can't talk. Do you know what? It's got to the point in the day where I'm actually unable to put a sentence together. You'll be editing this until tomorrow yourself. Yeah, no worries. Um, but you you get to the point where the amount of topics that have been introduced were not introduced by the authors, as Mm -hmm. in the speaker of the statement, the witness. Let's call them that. But actually, by the police officer, so you get a lot less in a way. Oh, absolutely, and you know there are obviously linguistic ways of being able to spot patterns, and there are obviously linguistic, um. Features that you build up a kind of evidence base to make the case for something, and there is enough in in these statements that we can say, well, actually, that has not that has that is a pattern in say twenty five statements mm-hmm. interviewed by this person. Uh, these have been introduced by the scribe, let's say the police officer. But I've spoken with the, a lot of the survivors as well who say, "Oh, I never said that. You know, yeah. I never said it like that." And you know, we followed up with some some of the witnesses who who own these statements, and and they've said, "No way, I did not introduce that idea." They kept torturing me about this, or they kept pressing me about that. And you think, well, you won't get that if you're in the jury. Yeah. You don't get that. You simply get a witness statement that tells you what happened, how it happened, when yeah. it happened, and it all sounds very credible because it's very detailed. But the audience, in this case, the jury and the judge and the leader of the inquest, they don't know what questions have been asked. They don't know what dialogue went on and they certainly don't know who introduced the topics of say alcohol or ticket titan or any of that. Yeah. But it's made to look like it's the witness. you know. So they thought it was newsworthy enough to introduce it. Therefore it must be evidentially significant. Therefore let's listen to this and pay attention and, and you know formulate our own. There's a lot of inferencing goes on with these things. So it's just sort of picking that apart and spelling out for the reader what is actually going on and how. And we do that with linguistic analysis and it just, it's forensic linguistics because it happens to be dealing with forensic material in a forensic context. You know, we don't do anything
0: different than linguists do. It's yeah. just the context that we work in. Yeah. And do you also interview, have you also interviewed police officers who are involved? Maybe retired ones? I don't know, I guess current ones or not.
1: Yeah, I have not connected to Hillsborough. Nobody wants to talk to me. Okay. I, I did consider getting myself arrested and I have it on good authority that if I steal something from a particular shop, I'm definitely going to get lifted. Yeah. But um, there's also a, a slight side risk that I, that I may get prosecuted and I like my job.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and we like you to stay here. So <laughs> that's uh, the other side of it. Um, cause you've been involved in a lot of, um, linguistic projects back in Northern Ireland as well, if I remember correctly, right? I think you were involved with some projects in prison as well. I've been in prison a good few years there too now. Um, Yeah, I I set
1: up a couple of literary projects in prison Mm -hmm. and I ended up doing some work on, it was sort of accidental. I I keep getting into these scrapes and then end up in all sorts of places. But I got into the the prison and set up a couple of reading projects uh, where we met with, with it was a women's prison. It's the only female prison in the north of Ireland. And it was thankfully in Belfast. so, I didn't have to go very far to get there
0: <laughs>
1: um, so i so I went, but it could have been a world away i mean it really it really is a bizarre situation, a bizarre context. So I set up a reading group where I read aloud to a small group of women mm-hmm. from you know fiction, really good fiction and and poetry, and we were there probably for two hours, two and a half hours each session uh The door was locked believe it or not at times and and there was the warden just leaves and that's it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you think right, okay, so anything goes
0: wrong, nobody's there. So it was a bit dodgy at times. Uh and is there it, anything uh, in particular that you uh, read with these women that really connected with them? Everything. everything. And I'm not exaggerating. You know, there was I learned more about reading
1: with women in prison than I ever did at university or, or school. I really mean that there is a a way of reading out loud with people that forces you to see things from different perspectives that would never have probably entered your head before. So when someone is reading to you and with you and slowly, not, not fast, not the way I talk, I mean, much slower than this. It, it gives you a couple of seconds of silence to kind of absorb what's been spoken, what's been read. Um, And to respond to it and to kind of relate it to your own life because like we do that when we read you know Mm -hmm. how you say oh that's not how it was in the book when you go and see a movie about a book you think oh that's not how i pictured it the house was not like that yeah but that's because we all have our own schematic understanding of of everything in the world and how it works yeah and we also have our own experience so we're mapping that onto what we know is the sort of general consensus onto what someone's particular experience is and all the time we're reading, we're like evaluating, evaluating, yeah. evaluating all the time. But if you do that by yourself, that's pretty powerful. But if you do that with a group of other people in the room at the same time, live, you know, live reading, yeah. live
0: exchange, live thinking, it's, that is that is powerful stuff. And so, is there any memory that stands out from that time? Um, God, there's so many. There's so many. I, I usually... When people
1: ask me this, the first thing I think about is the first session I actually had. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I can't say any names, okay, but this is probably going to be a bit of a giveaway. (laughs) I I had worked really hard to get this project off the ground into an actual reading group by going to the prison, introducing myself to the women in prison, telling them who I was. Um, They are very skeptical, as you could probably imagine. They don't trust very easily. And and I had to do a lot of groundwork to get the women to be okay with me and to know that there was nothing sort of hidden, no, no hidden agenda. I literally just wanted to read, yeah. to make them feel a bit better and give them something to do. Um, so in all that groundwork, you get to know the characters, you get to know the different people. Yeah. So there were two women there who I had already had frequent dealings with leading up to the first group. And one of them, uh, one of them is in for murder and the other one is in for manslaughter hmm So in the first session that I had, both of those women and including there was about twelve in the group and there was about three or four of them who were in for murder as well. So um there was there was quite a few. And the reason I say that is because they were there for a long time, meaning I got a good opportunity to work overtime with them mm-hmm. as opposed to someone who was just in for a short period. Yeah. But the first session, these two women were here and uh the lady who was in for manslaughter, I, I'll call her Mary she, she just freaked out the minute the door shut. And I, I get it now. I didn't at the time. I thought, why would anybody be afraid yeah. of the door being shut? But of course, stupid naive Patricia would not have had a clue at that point, uh, that, that, that might be terrifying for some people to be locked in. So the door shut and she just said, I want any to leave. Now she was about twice the height of me, which yeah. isn't hard because you know, I'm a smart, <laughs> um, but she, she was really tall and very dominant, you know, very, her presence was, was quite striking. And, uh, She said, I need to go. And I thought, oh Christ, I didn't know what I could do possibly anyway because I had no access to keys. I didn't know where their cells were uh, from where we were. So this went on for a few minutes and I I finally got her to sit and asked her, uh, promised her that I would take her off the list after the session was over and that yeah. that was the best that I could do. And that if she could just sit for this session, I, I would absolutely respect her wish not to come back. Yeah. She So as a point of protest, she lifts her chair, she moves to the corner of the room, turns it against the wall and faces the wall. And I okay. think, oh, great. And this is my first session, right? Yeah. At the same time, I had another lady in the group who uh, is a, life, a lifer, as we would say. And she was glaring at me for the entire time. And I didn't know what the problem was and I yeah. didn't ask because I thought I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go and read so I just started to read and I, could, I was very conscious of this lady glaring at me and in the corner I was very conscious of Mary with her back to me. Yeah. So I just I started to read and as I read and there were some uh, interjections from the women, some laughs, some jokes some references to things that that they had mapped on to the reading and made them think of their own experiences and we started to share funny little things and and then I kept going back to the reading and carrying on and the next thing I notice is Neary's chair is starting to turn around yeah and I so I say nothing and it carries on and then she starts to come closer
0: yeah
1: then by the time we're halfway through this story and all the chit chat I still don't. I still don't acknowledge that she's come over because I sort of didn't want to put her off. And she leans in really quietly, and we all have to strain to hear her. And she says, "I really like this," and oh everybody God. just <laughs> clapped. And I thought, "Thank God!" <laughs> you know, for so many for so many reasons, I was so pleased that that happened. But your woman's still glaring at me on the other side. Yeah. You know, still throwing me daggers, and metaphorically speaking. Anyway, I don't find this out. So Mary came back every week and eventually loved it and, you know, really did have a transformation uh, of lots of different, in lots of different ways just by attending the group. And a year later, she, um, I was, I was attending a, what was it called? You know, when you get a prize for, a prize giving, a prize giving. Yeah. And they invited me to this prize giving and they had all completed this um, reading challenge that was separate from my group, but had kind of been kicked off by yeah. their opinions of the group. And they'd read six books in six weeks. And, you know, these are people who never lifted a book before. And they were so happy and they got this prize and I was in the audience and I was, you know, the tears were dripping me because yeah. that's what I do. <laughs> and, uh, and she gives me this big hug and she says to me, um, whatever happened to that woman, Patricia? And I said, what woman, Mary? And she goes, do you know that woman who had to hide in the bunker because of the nuclear thing that was going on outside? And, of course, I realised then she was talking about a a fictional character in the story. And it was one of those stories where the ending was not determined. It was was quite well written, actually. There was a lot of gaps left so that you had to do a lot of thinking. But for her, she needed that closure. She needed to know what happened to this mother. And I thought that was amazing. That was a year later. She's still asking me about a character. So who says books don't stay with you, you know? But I never got to tell you about this glaring, daggers face. Yeah. Um, I only found this out about three months later. And by the way, she's fine with me now, has been ever since. It was just that one day. And I only found this out recent a couple of months after, that she had been the subject of a very uncomplimentary documentary Oh, the night before and would have assumed, has assumed that I would have watched it and negatively judged her on the basis of this documentary that she took no part in. Of course, I didn't see the bloody documentary. I'm quite glad I didn't because it might have been aware of what what she was doing. But she was, I just think she was just silently challenging me to go on, judge me, you know, judge me, if you will. And uh, I wouldn't have wanted to have shown any sort of reaction whatsoever. So... And that's That was my first session, and that probably is typical of what happened after. But, <laughs> and there was always something, and, you yeah. know, half the time it was the prison wardens and not the, the women that were the issue, so, um, yeah, the, I have stories. I, I'm supposed to be writing a book about it, but I'm actually... Uh, I want
0: to read not, that book, you should write it. Well,
1: uh, yeah, it's just, I, I just have a problem with it um, ethically. I just, I didn't go in there to do research, I went there to read to a bunch of women, and it just so happened that it provided excellent material if I did want to do research, and yeah. I'm just not sure I'm going to do it. So yeah, I can it. imagine
0: that that feels like almost a betrayal of the relationship you have with them.
1: Yeah, that's sort of how I feel about it. So yeah, uh, yeah. You have to be careful. You know, it's you're you're not always a researcher. People, you're, a researcher does research, but they're human as well, and there is an element of I'm fiercely loyal as well. So I have this this feeling that if I Turn this into a study that I somehow dehumanize and do the very opposite of the one thing I'm trying to do which is provide a voice for people who need to be heard yeah they become objects instead of subjects yeah yeah and I I don't know how to tread carefully there and the relationship means too much to me so I may not do it I don't I, I don't need that kind of um yeah
0: Attention! <laughs> you could it with them. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's that's one of the options. But I, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that getting into prison is much more difficult than getting out of prison. Yeah. So I'm, I'm having trouble getting in.
0: So um, you mentioned at the start that uh, school wasn't really your thing when you were younger uh, to say the least. So how do you become a teacher then? Oh God, that was an accident
1: as well. I don't really know. Um, I, you know, I don't really know. I never set out to be a teacher. I'm not even sure I call myself a teacher. Obviously I've been teaching for a hundred years now. So I feel like I have to, I have to own the the role of teacher now, but certainly wasn't what I started out doing. Um, I, I I don't know how to answer that. I I sort of fell into, I did, I did a degree, didn't think I would pass first year ended up getting a brilliant first class honours degree out of it and thought oh maybe I'm not bad at this. Yeah. And then I was, I was asked
0: to do a master's. So what happened there then because you went in thinking not sure I will like it, not sure I'm great at this and you end up with a first class honours degree. What, what Yeah. I don't, I, I don't really know.
1: Um, I asked a lot of questions and I, I was a lot older than everybody else university because I didn't go to university immediately after school on account of the fact that it didn't qualify in anything other than talking crap at school so by the time I left you know I, I had to work my way up to getting a few extra qualifications in order to get in um, so I was a bit older than everybody else and I thought I'm not going to fit in here and also everybody was rich and I was not rich. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody that I encountered at university had bags of money and I was thinking, Jesus, you know, I had to sell two kidneys in order to get to university in the first place. Um, and one of them wasn't even mine. <laughs> so, um, I, I don't really know. I, I suppose I got really bitten, but I started teaching as a way of uh, getting experience while doing a PhD. That's probably the, the quick answer. And then, and then people asked me, would you not teach this course and would you not teach that? And I thought, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I'll do a bit of that. And I'll do a bit of that. And I just got really passionate about it and then thought if I, and the other reason is I was put off university teaching because I just did not want there to be that sort of elitism that I hated myself and that I would have faced myself, although it didn't, didn't bother me. I could handle it easily enough. It was fine. Um, but I didn't want to be part of that ivory tower. Yeah. Sorry for the Belfast accent there. Power. But I didn't want to be part of that ivory tower. I wanted to, I wanted to be outdoing rather than theorising and, and, and philosophising about it, although there is a lot to philosophise about. So I thought, well, you know, who better than to just say, keep it real? I f- bloody sound like Jenny from the block here. <laughs> but I, I the from the block, oh God. So I just wanted to keep it a bit real. And I, I, I thought, well... Maybe that's what I should be doing then. So I just, that's how I got into teaching. Probably because mm-hmm. I'm crap at everything else. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Isn't that Maybe. why? No, hope. actually, <laughs> I
1: don't know what it would be if I wasn't a teacher, a music producer. I am fantastic at spotting good material and good singers and good artists. Always have been.
0: I should be more like A&R then, I guess, than a music producer in a way. What's that? Oh, uh, well, I don't I forgot what the A and R stands for, but it's uh, sort of it's the people at record companies that discover the new artists. That's,
1: that'll be what I do, and then in, in a in another life, that's what I'll be doing. I'll be out there scouting for
0: good material. Yeah, or A and D. I don't remember what the name is anymore. Um, well, maybe- but yeah, so as a teacher, is there like any class that stands out in your memory? For yeah. Um- <laughs>
1: I taught in prison once, in a male prison in New York. That was pretty powerful as well. I don't know why I came... I've obviously clearly drawn to prisons and incarceration. Mm -hmm. You know? (laughs) Uh, I don't know why. Actually, do you know what? When I got the role of setting up the project in the prison, Mm -hmm. I remember they came to my university asking for um, applicants to, to appoint someone to lead this project. And, of course, I, along with loads of other people, applied. And while I got the job, all of, all of the people who were doing a PhD with me at the time um, in various fields, but, but together in the university, said to me, Trisha, you should apply for this job, it'd be perfect for you. And I thought there are too many people telling me that I'd be perfect for a job in the slammer with a bunch of women who have killed people. You know, <laughs> this is really the, something I should be looking into here. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I can't remember what your question was. Again, I'm doing this thing, aren't I, where I'm just...
0: A memorable teaching experience. Oh,
1: memorable teaching the right answer is they're all memorable but the truth is they're not all memorable usually the ones that are terrible are memorable yeah give ever take give a teach in a room and nobody speaks to you and you just feel like are yeah. you all alive That's I've, yeah.
0: I've had it for recruitment that there's one school in particular where every time we go and speak there afterwards we're like did that go well we don't actually know because the audience is like aliens or something with no facial expressions no body language no. Yeah, that's, for me which is <laughs> cool. like this is a weird school man what do you teach these kids but uh yeah no, that, those are always uncomfortable
1: yeah I, I think that we are all the same when it comes to that we just indifference is the hardest sort of criticism isn't it <laughs> yeah. yeah i'd rather have someone have a go at me than, than be indifferent to be honest um I, i've had a, quite a few memorable classes uh one of my favorites is research in context
0: (laughs) so for those you listening that aren't familiar with the curriculum at ucu research in context is the only course that all of our students take it's a course that's taught in their very first semester and it's an introduction to academic research and liberal arts and sciences um and it's sort of notorious because it's of course it's an obligatory course um yeah and it's an introduction course so
1: and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, pretend hostility about research in context. <laughs> and I and I really emphasize the pretend there because yeah. any student that has ever come through the classes, and I used to teach two groups, like, as well. So, you know, I, I, a lot of research in contexters have come through my classes. Um, and they, I think they almost feel that they have to show some hostility, but... They all say to me after, you know, most of the students will say to me, actually, that was, that's was fun. You know, I learned something. <laughs> so the best, the best classes are the ones where you think sometimes you feel like this could be like flogging a dead horse to somebody. But actually, they turn out to be really engaging and, and quite exciting. And I have actually found that happens with research and context. And uh, I quite enjoy that because of the reputation that obligatory courses tend to have at particular universities or most universities.
0: Yeah. I think it's often also then, you know, it's the whole low expectations, high expectations, anything. If people go in with low expectations, it's a lot easier to make it a memorable <laughs> experience in some way. But, yeah um, But still, I mean, research and context given in the, the the image that it has, it's always remarkable um to hear the very big compliments that are here from my students about your classes there.
1: Oh, that's lovely. And I don't even have to pay you to say anything of so- the <laughs>
0: Well, feel free to buy me chocolate. I mean, that's perfectly okay. Done.
1: Consider it done.
0: <laughs> so what for you, because um, you've taught in multiple places, um, what is teaching at UCU like compared to the other places? Is it a similar experience? Is it different? Um... Uh, I don't think anywhere is the same. I, I don't even think two classes are the same sometimes.
1: You know, I could teach two different courses at UCU and feel like I'm in two different parts of the country or parts of the world. Yeah. Um I think it's it's partly to do with how how much more experience you have at teaching as well. You know, you, you can feel more comfortable maybe in some places and less in others. I, I don't know. I think it's not wildly different than any well, okay, I'm I'm contradicting myself. Everywhere is different, every teaching experience I have is different, but there are obviously some things that are similar. Yeah. But what I think about UCU and teaching at UCU is I, I remember when I first arrived, I thought, "God, the students are really different here." You know, because I was coming from, say, UCR down in Middleburg. I'm talking about within Holland here, and uh, the students at UCU there was more confidence. Dare I say it? Yeah. Um, and and more ownership. I think that came from feeling like they own the place because they li- because our students live on campus, so they do effectively <laughs> own the place. You know, and I I noticed this sort of shift from. Um, students expecting you on the one hand to to come in and provide and do your thing and they were there for your group whereas when I went to UCU it was like can I come in
0: please?
1: Yeah. <laughs> they were like, yeah. They were like, yeah, you may come in now, you may. You <laughs> may you. I'm exaggerating, I'm exaggerating, yeah. but I'll be honest, I love teaching at UCA. I love my students. I think about my students at the weekend when I pretend I don't work. I think about them <laughs> in the evening when I pretend I don't work and I worry about them incessantly. And I, I think that I've never really had that interaction with students until... I came to UCU and it was about a year or two after I arrived that I really got that. But I think a part it partly comes from being a tutor as well. Yeah. You know, you sort of get more, I want to get in trouble with this. I feel like I have more empathy for students now. I would have been, I had a bit of a reputation for being a strict out cow before, which you know, I, I was and I am, I still think I am. But I understand more where students are coming from now. Yeah. I also have an offspring who's the same age. So maybe that's how my daughter's is saying oh, I mean, sure you
0: know, and it's also because I do recognize it because I've taught at other universities as well. Mm. And there I was only a teacher. So you really only see the student in the class and yeah. you see only that tiny little part of their personality and who they are. Yeah. Um, but as a tutor, you get to see them much more as a well-rounded human being in many ways. Um, and that definitely helps because you have a little bit more of an idea of what's the background there, what's going on behind the scenes Um, and especially at a place like ucu where you do sort of have some idea what the rhythm of the year is and what happened the evening before like if halloween has happened you'll know about it because you saw some people walking around (laughs) in crazy costumes um and you know that that will have an impact on your class the next day so it's just
1: they should um, come to our classes in their halloween costumes because i do oh i would
0: love that yeah i
1: do a mean scar face have you seen my my uh, horrific makeup (laughs) Oh,
0: no, <laughs> we can add it as a picture to like the the interview um i think, we should. <laughs> I think we should <laughs> is there anything at ucu that you would still like to do as a teacher or as a tutor any oh, project yeah, like the wrong
1: as in i mean do you what, how specific do you want to do i mean there's there's tons of stuff i'd like to still do i mean i feel like you know i i learn every day something new and there's there's obviously courses I want to run there are roles I want to have I want to set up a proper reading community and yes. even myself and Agnes and and Simon were doing work for the um one book one campus or <laughs> one campus one book as I keep calling it uh and I love that I love the fact that we were getting students yes. to read fiction and you know even in I, I've done I've set up reading groups in, and I, I mean read aloud groups you know yeah. proper slow thoughtful reading and I, I've set them up in every circumstance and context that you can imagine from psych um forensic psych yeah. units to to schools to prisons and wherever else and the hardest groups i've ever had to
0: get going were in universities why is yeah. that i don't know i have too yeah too much of good thing i don't know, too I, don't many, know. I mean we... effort's not special i don't know
1: Reading is, is something that we all have to do when we're students, right? Yeah. But, you know, I want it to be something that you want to do. Yeah. I want my students to want to read. And I don't want them to just read stuff that they think is going to, um, you know, make them write a good essay. I want them to read stuff that's going to make them be a good human. So yeah. I want them to go off and read, oh, God, I don't know. Um, we need to talk about Kevin or... Uh, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by mm-hmm. Mark Haddon, or I mean, go and read something that makes you think and frightens you and makes you uncomfortable.
0: And you know, so maybe, we should have like you know, a weekly lunch reading session or something. I but think, that's what I'm doing two years ago.
1: Yeah, we need to, yeah, that's right. And I think we need to resurrect it. And I'm, I'm going to get Agnes on board again, although she doesn't know this. But thanks, Agnes. And <laughs> um, um, you're by <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, she'll, we'll, I'll make her a cake or something. Um, but we, we need to be doing this. We need to be doing this as a community. This is a lovely community-building thing that we need to do. So I'm, I'm up for it if anybody wants to come read with Patricia.: You don't oh, have okay. to: be, You don't have to be in prison to do this, you know?
0: <laughs> All kinds of you know, comparisons between campus and prison now come up, but they're not comparable.:
1: <laughs> well, really. No, I, can, I can tell you from experience, there is nothing like being in prison, and I do not mean that in a good way.
0: No so so we've talked about you as a teacher as a researcher Mm -hmm. so now a couple of questions about you as a human being um you already mentioned you're originally from belfast in northern ireland Ireland. how did you end up in the netherlands um i like tulips nah i, I, I won't spoil it for you but they're turkish originally No, i know I, I knew you'd say something <laughs> clever like that <laughs> <laughs> sorry
1: um no i came here years ago like what year would it you know i don't even know what year it was was it early 90s like no maybe maybe yeah it was early 90s and i came here with a group of young people after the ceasefires in the north of ireland happened and there was a whole load of money plugged in, plugged into the the community groups to try and get some rebuilding of communities again. And as part of that peace initiative, uh, I was involved with a project that took young people from very segregated areas of, of Belfast and mm-hmm. Dublin, um, in the south of Ireland, away to different places, different countries, so that they could have a wider horizon, actually that's what you called it, a wider horizon programme. Yeah. And so we spent four months in the Netherlands in a place called Omen,
0: which is the
1: border of Germany. And I absolutely fell in love with the simplicity of this country. Everything just worked like that. (laughs) And, you know, I've come from the north of Ireland where everything is chaotic, absolutely weird, uh, not working. You know, people were killing each other. Uh, There are so many stories. So I just find the simplicity of everything that I've later been told, oh, no, that's just boring, Patricia. And I'm thinking, (laughs) it's like that when they home, everybody just wants to go on being boring i quite like a bit of boring yeah. so i was happy for the boring and i wanted to come here that sounds wrong the netherlands is not boring
0: but i loved it there's and something I- to it though i mean i've lived in i've lived myself in caracas in venezuela and in mexico city and the nice thing about boring is that you have a lot of energy left to do things you like
1: yeah. and you don't
0: need to spend a lot of time and energy on just making the stuff work that you need for your survival. Mm. So in that way, I like the boring part.
1: (laughs) Well, that was how I felt, you know, I just had a frenetic existence up to that point, Uh, being, in quotation marks, a child of the troubles. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: You know, any country that calls a, a conflict where thousands of people were killed, The Troubles tells you everything about the ideality of the country. So I just want, I just really thought I could live here. This is me. This is my existence. I need to be here. And it was years later that I thought I always talked about it. And of course your life takes different twists and turns and mine did as well. And then I just said one day, I would love to live here. I was visiting. I thought I'd love to live here. And my husband says to me, you say this every time we come here. Why don't we just do it? And yeah. I, well, I started to list all these reasons why it would not be visible and there were yeah. many and they were legitimate reasons and every one of them he just knocked away, knocked away, knocked away. We can do that. He's very
0: pragmatic and sensible yeah. and I'm absolutely not. So I thought, okay, smart boy, I'll do it. Cool. So your husband's not Dutch and he's from Northern Ireland? No, he's English but he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, he's
1: English. <laughs> yeah, I would have got shot for going with him back in the day, yeah pre-ceasefire
0: that would not have happened yeah he's English so have things changed for the better um yes I would say largely they have
1: it's not completely you know uh we're not completely over the whole uh, troubled era but you know we've a lot of memory as well so that's that's good and bad but it's a lot better than what it used to be Mm -hmm. most definitely i mean i can walk down the street with an english husband now whereas i would not have been allowed to do that and that would not have happened and where i was from certainly not no
0: okay i have two final questions for you one you know already the other one is actually um about books because you mentioned that you're uh, big on reading Mm -hmm. what is the last book that made a big impression on you
1: Oh, that's a tough question. That's a terrible <laughs> question. That's like asking me to pick my favourite child. Actually, oh, no. I have only got one. Um, child, not book. Uh, <laughs> actually, the last book that made an impression on me, I will go with the recency principle here. Um, it's actually, I always forget the author's names. This is going to be embarrassing if I get this wrong. All Fall Down by, is it Sally Nichols? Ooh. Um, I think it's Sally Nichols has written that. uh,
0: Yeah, it's at the bottom of your email. It's Sally Nichols. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's not just because I recently read that, because I'll be honest, I read Milkman,
0: which was the
1: prize winning, and I just did I couldn't finish it. I I just got to third of the way through and I thought this is too much. I can't, it's, I don't like it.
0: Yeah.
1: I must be missing something. I just didn't like it, but I am determined to finish it. But All Fall Down by Sally Nichols. Absolutely beautiful book. And it's because... Probably of the pandemic at the minute that mm-hmm. it has made a bit of an impact on me because I've been able to relate everything in it. Yeah, a historical fiction book about the Black Death or the plague. Ah,
0: death. of course, yeah. And
1: it's just so beautifully written. It's just lovely. Go and read it. Oh, you will love it. <laughs> <That's
0: very popular. laughs> I'll put it on my list for sure. Thank you so much for your time. It was lovely getting to know you a little bit better. Um, I definitely think we should get the reading thing going. The reading uh, during lunch, reading aloud—that would be lovely.
1: I'd be up to that. Just tell me that you want to do it and I'll go.
0: I, I want to do it. So let's do it. <laughs> that's that sort of thing. Glad I got that raised. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for your time. I'm very much looking forward to seeing you again in person. Me too. And um, Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
1: And I'm, I'm sorry if I went on a wee bit because I do tend to do that.
0: No, you didn't at all.
1: All right. <laughs>